Okay, it's, um, it's uh, half past six, so we should make a start. Thanks to you all for coming tonight. I know it's a, it's a lovely London evening, the first for many, many months. So uh, thanks for coming. Um, and it's uh, a very exciting theme around the issue of cultural studies tradition, thinking about culture and how that can address the issues of inequality today. Um, my name is Mike Savage. I'm Professor of Sociology here at the LSE, and I'm one of the co-directors of the International Inequalities Institute, which is hosting this, this event. Um, so it's a fantastic panel, who I'll introduce in a minute. Uh, and the idea is to kind of reflect upon different resources we can use from what is loosely, or what we might loosely call, the cultural studies tradition. And that will range, as you'll see from the various speakers, that will range over many different reference points. The Birmingham School, uh, Bourdieu, uh, Stuart Hall, anti-racism, feminism, Marxism. So we're just going to try and put these issues into play and uh, encourage a discussion and a reflection about how we might use those intellectual resources in the current debates around inequality. Uh, and the, the, the idea will be that um, Tony Bennett, who is the research professor um, in social and cultural theory at the University of Western Sydney, will, he will speak for about 20 minutes. Um, he'll introduce um, a series of themes, and then we're going to have somewhat shorter presentations um, from Angela McRobbie, um, who is Professor of Communications at Goldsmiths University of London. Um, she will be well known to many of you with her work on feminism, and she's currently competing feminism, neoliberalism, and popular culture. Then we'll have Clive, Clive Nwonka, who's the course leader for the Attic Fellows Programme in, in the IAI, um, and he, he's known to many of us here. Uh, he's an expert on issues of how inequality is visualized and framed in cinema and cultural policy. Um, and he, will, he and Angela will talk for about 10 minutes. And then Beverly Skeggs, who is the academic director for the Atlantic Fellows Program for Social Economic Equity here at the LSE, will finish off with a, probably a shorter period of time. Her work will be known to, to all of us, many of us, around questions of gender, particularly around gender and class in cultural studies. So, so between, between the four of them, hopefully about 50 minutes up to an hour, and then that will give us half an hour for a discussion and for questions from the floor. So it should be a fantastic evening. Um, let, me in, let me invite Tony to come to the podium. Okay, well, uh, many thanks uh, to Mike and Dave especially for inviting me to come and take part in this event. I'm very pleased to be here. Looking forward to hearing what the other speakers have to say and uh, what you have to say after we've all had our few words. Um, my brief for this occasion was to talk... Am I audible? Yep. It was to talk about how aesthetic conceptions have informed cultural studies and cultural sociology approaches to class inequalities. It's a bit of an abstract start uh, for such a, a, a major topic, but I've tried not to make it too abstract. The tradition of aesthetics that I'm going to tap into for this purpose has its roots in the aesthetic theories of the civic humanists, late 17th, early 18th centuries, in which differential aesthetic capacities, or more accurately, the difference between a capacity for aesthetic judgment and its absence, were linked to the divisions between occupations, especially between the so-called aesthetically competent members of the gentry and liberal professions and those whose immersions in mechanical occupations were said to afford them neither the time nor the capacity for disinterested aesthetic contemplation. When recast in the aesthetic theory of Immanuel Kant, such conceptions of the relations between aesthetics 
an occupation, were linked to an expectation of the eventual overcoming of the division of occupations through the historical production of a census communis, in which the universality which Kant attributed to aesthetic judgment, the contention that aesthetic judgments claim um, an assent to their universality as a condition of their communicability would be realised. Okay, so much for that background. What I want to do is to show how such conceptions inform some aspects of the approaches to class of Raymond Williams and Pierre Bourdieu, also taking in briefly Jacques Rancière's critique of Bourdieu, while also looking at the ways in which the problem space of Bourdieu's conception of cultural capital was shaped by eugenic approaches to the inheritance of aesthetic capacities. I'm going to start with this. Uh, on clearing out my study recently, I came across the 1978 text of Williams's uh, a, a, a transcription of a talk he gave at the Open University for the Popular Culture course, a text called Popular Culture, Problems of Definition. Um, he gave this talk to the Popular Culture course team. He was the assessor for this course. And I also came across a presentation given a week later, a month later, by Stuart Hall, Popular Culture, History and Theory, given when he'd just arrived at the Open University. And I'm pleased to say that both of these essays are going to be, both of these talks are going to be published in full in the last issue of Cultural Studies of this year. I was struck reading this again by the emphasis that Williams placed on the role of novelty in distinguishing contemporary urban forms of working-class culture, music hall, from earlier forms of folk culture, and in so doing so, stretching modernist values across, um, across the high popular divide. This prompted me to look again at the role that the culture concept developed in the American School of Anthropology associated with the work of Franz Boas and his various students, particularly Ruth Benedict, that is, the concept of culture as a patterned way of life, it prompted me to become interested in the role that this had played in Williams's work. I'm just going to make a couple of points on this. First, the debt that Williams's conception of the structure of feeling which gave different ways of life their coherence owed to Ruth Benedict's concept of the pattern of a culture, a concept through which she aestheticized Native American cultures by attributing to them the same values of formal coherence that modernist aestheticians like William Warringer had attributed to works of art. And secondly, the influence on Williams of the related Boasian concept of culture areas, which grounded the formal coherence of ways of life in the creative capacities of the people occupying a particular territory. Williams derived this influence from the American School of Anthropology from T.S. Eliot, who, as you'll see from this, was deeply immersed in the Boasian definition of culture in the anthropological tradition. What Williams adds in his essay on culture is ordinary is an interplay between these territorial coordinates of the culture concept and class. As contra Eliot, he insists that it is working class culture, not the petty niceties of the English ruling class that Eliot invoked and celebrated, it was for Williams working class culture that conferred on English culture understood as a distinctive way of life, it's, uh, understood as a way of life, its distinctive coherence. So he pins his colours here to the principles of a distinct working class way of life with its emphasis on neighbourhood, mutual obligation and common betterment as the best basis for any future English society. 
His formulations of working-class culture were given a more philosophical spin in Williams's conception of a common culture, which locates working-class community as the mechanism in the present through which society would be carried beyond the intellectual, cultural, and sensory divisions of classes uh, that are the effects of the division of labor. William's account of common culture in this regard is just one version of a widespread tendency to translate Kant's categories into the terms of a Marxist or neo-Marxist historical schema, but in terms of Marxist historical schemas, the most elaborate version of which was George Lukács's work, And Williams' work shares with such schemas the contention that it is the dynamics of the real, class conflict as the motor of history, which makes the working class both the harbinger of the universal that is to come, the census communis, the common culture, and the historical force that will bring that universal into being. To switch now across the channel, Pierre Bourdieu had little time for such conceptions seeing working-class cultures inescapably limited by what he called the culture of the necessary, which ruled out any capacity for form-giving aesthetic activity or discrimination. This is what he has to say in um, distinction uh, about uh, no uh, no form-giving capacity to actively shape a distinctive way of life, rather the culture of the necessity as the effect of an impoverished environment and effecting a closure of what he called the universal, the universe of possibles he derives from this, attributing to the working class no capacity to play any leading role in the shaping of social futures. Williams registered these aspects of Bourdieu's work as differing from his own. Together with Nicholas Garnham, he wrote an essay in 1980 to accompany an English translation of the first chapter of Distinction in the journal Media, Culture and Society while accepting that some subordination of form to function was an aspect of working-class culture and welcoming Bourdieu's critique of populist forms of workerism, Williams and Graham were disturbed by their sense that the working classes were not presented by Bourdieu as either potential active subjects of their own liberation or as a force capable of leading society beyond the splintering effects of the division of labor. Yet Bourdieu remained quite unmoved on these questions. In his much later book, Pascalian Meditations, he sees the working classes as being hemmed in by a habitus which denying any space in which free and reflective principles of judgment might might be formed, obliged to chaste to choose what it must. He simultaneously disposed of um, their combination in those historical narratives in which the working class both exemplifies and serves as the historical agent that will deliver a common culture on the other side of the history of class conflict. But in place of this, Bourdieu substituted another narrative, and a narrative which, in spite of appearances to the contrary, derived its coherence from Bourdieu's persistent commitment to the core defining principles of the Kantian aesthetic. While criticizing many aspects of Kant's aesthetic, he did not question its central claims. First, that an adequate appreciation of aesthetic form depends on distanced and reflective forms of appropriation which proceed independently of concepts. For, so the Kantian arguments go, the subordination of aesthetic judgment to concepts would would subordinate them to a purpose, it would make them useful, and it would deprive them of any autonomy. And second, 
that these are not given as universal but are to be made universal. In the love of art, for example, Bourdieu stated that his intention was not to refute Kant's phrase that the beautiful is that which pleases without a concept, but rather to define the social conditions which make possible both this experience and the people for whom it is possible, art lovers or peoples of taste, and thence to determine the limits within which it can exist. But these barriers, these limits were barriers to be overcome not by working class education in Bourdieu's conception, but through the education system, which Bourdieu repeatedly called on to distribute to all classes the aptitudes required for an adequate appreciation of and engagement with those forms of literary and artistic culture that have been vested with universal values by the institutions of cultural legitimation. We find a similar perspective in Bourdieu's 1994 text, Practical Reason, where he indicates his acceptance of Kant's description of aesthetic experience, inserting, however, the requirement that attention be paid to the economic and social conditions required to make the virtual universality of the aesthetic actual, and thus insisting that the starting point for sociological analysis is not the universal capacity to grasp the beautiful, but rather the incomprehension, the indifference of some agents who were deprived of adequate categories of aesthetic perception. The conclusion Bourdieu derives from this is that for intellectuals or the state to support the development of a popular or working class aesthetic would be misleading on two counts. First, he argues, since such, are not con such tastes are not convertible into tradable forms of cultural capital, such as he calls them populist rehabilitations of subordinate groups, succeed, and I quote, only in pushing them further down by converting deprivation and hardship into an elective choice. But second, he also argued that it would detract from the political demand that the full accomplishment of human potentialities that's represented by the Kantian conception of the disinterested appreciation of beauty requires a commitment to, and I quote again, working to universalize the conditions of access to universality. But this is the very essence of Kant's aesthetic so far as its translation into a distinctive political aesthetic program is concerned. The conditions Kantianism generates for such programs are one, that the universality of the aesthetic must be projected as a goal to be accomplished. Two, there must be agents of transition that can distill this universality in advance of its accomplishment and so serve as a route to it. Three, that the failure to judge competently must be accounted for in terms of a deficit in the makeup of the subject. And four, that such deficits can therefore only be overcome through the actions of some other agent. This deficit may, as in Bourdieu's case, be accounted for in terms of social processes rather than the inherent limitations of innate dispositions. Nonetheless, the deficit that he attributes to the working class is part of a discourse that operates in similar terms through the relations he proposes between the education system, the role of intellectuals, and the state. These have three main components. The first concerns his expectation that the education system should function as the primary vehicle for universalizing access to the universal. Second, he interprets the universality that is embodied in canonized works 
as the manifestation of a complex historicity through which those works transcend the particular conditions of their making by virtue of their relations to the historical dynamics underlying the development of literary and artistic fields. Their historical universality, that's the term that Bourdieu used, the historical universality of works of art is a value bestowed on them by collective intellectuals whose autonomy from the economic and political fields, he argued, vouchsafes for them a position of putative universality which enabled them to sift the cultural heritage of humanity so as to separate the genuinely universal in the process of its becoming from the irremediably particularity and time-bound qualities of other cultural practices. How, though, are these universal values once deciphered to be disseminated so as to be made available to all and thus become universal in actuality? This third aspect of Bourdieu's account depends on his interpretation of the relations between collective intellectuals and the class to which objectively they they belong, but from which, through their practice, he argues, they distance themselves. The class to which he argued they belong was that of the dominated fraction of the dominant class. While this class fraction uses its influence to reproduce the connections between culture, education, and class on which its preferment depends, Bourdieu calls on the state, an ideal state brought under the direction of collective intellectuals, to initiate and drive the process of reform necessary to realize universal access to the historical universal. This is an argument that replicates the deep structure of Kant's aesthetic. Let me recall the four conditions Kant require, that required to translate Kant's analytic of the beautiful into a distinctive political aesthetic program and outline how Bourdieu meets these. One, Kant's requirement that the universality of the aesthetic must be projected as a goal to be accomplished. This, for Bourdieu, results from the historical dynamics of literary and art fields in generating sets of universal values. Two, that there must be agents of transition that can distill this universality in advance of its accomplishment and serve as a conduit to it. The role he attributes to the collective intellectual whose collective sifting of the past identifies the historical universal in the process of becoming. And three, that the failure of those whose empirical tastes separate them from the universality which beckons must be accounted for in terms of a deficit in the make-up of the subject. This is the result of the class-specific partialities and limitations associated with different habitus. And four, that such deficits can only be overcome through the actions of some other agents. The working class, unable to overcome the constraining effects of the culture of the necessary through its own efforts, can receive this only in the form of a gift, the donor being the collective intellectual. In contrast to Williams, then, there is in Bourdieu's account no movement of real history that will lead the working class and the rest of society beyond the limiting effects of necessity and the schismatic effects of the division of labor. This is replaced by a narrative which works in terms of the relations between fields, the position of the intellectual, collective intellectual within these, and the relations between such intellectuals, the state, and the education system, through which the working class will eventually receive the universal as an indirect gift from autonomous intellectuals. It was this aspect of Bourdieu's work that Jack Rancia took issue with in, in his account of Bourdieu as what he called the sociologist king. 
a reformist program that reorganizes the relations between social positions by redistributing cultural capital is for Rancière a position marked by the logic of what he called police, a term he used very loosely. But what he meant by this was a practice conducted from above by the sociologist in collaboration with the state and on the basis of a form of expertise which lays claim to a knowledge of the connections between social positions which eludes the occupants of those positions. Rancière counterposes to this a distinctive conception of politics. Politics, in his definition, does not play a part in the distributional struggles over the allocation of rights and rewards across the division of humanity into different occupations, which is what accounts of cultural capital do. Uh, Rather, it intrudes into such orderings of the social the assertion of the equality of speaking beings. It's an intervention produced by those who previously of no account, lacking any political or civic status, assert their right to be heard heard and seen and thus to be taken into account. They do so not as one party amongst others in the distributional states of equity politics, but as an enunciation of the community, a community no longer rent by the division between occupations that is yet to come, but which, simply by articulating the demand for it, becomes a virtual component in the makeup of the present. Politics is, in short, a set of discursive interventions into and with the principles of police, as he defines it, which indicts existing forms of political struggle over distributional issues in the name of a community to come that will displace such concerns. A position diametrically opposed to Bourdieu's, but which rehearses a similar post-Kantian account of the role of the aesthetic in the historical overcoming of the division of occupations. I'll come back to this, but I first want to look briefly at another aspect of Bourdieu's work, the narrative of time and accumulation associated with the transmission of cultural capital as a form of inheritance. Francis Galton's work on the artistic faculty provides an instructive point of reference here. Oops. For Galton, the artistic faculty in any person might be somehow measured and its amount determined, just as we may measure strength, the power of discrimination of time, or the tenacity of memory. This involves separating the artistic faculty from other aptitudes so that its differential distribution across generations might be examined to show, for example, that children, both of whose parents possessed the artistic faculty, were three times more likely to inherit it than the offspring of parents who both lacked it. The data for this exercise was derived from the items in Galton's record of family faculties, a kind of precursor of cultural capital surveys, which asked participants to record their favorite artistic pursuits and attitudes, e.g. in drawing. The artistic faculty for Galton was, of course, an innate one governed by laws of inheritance no different from those applying to stature and eye color, whereas the aesthetic disposition for Bourdieu was a socially acquired and transmitted one. Nonetheless, a similar structure of attention is in operation. Indeed, Alain Desrazier, the French historian of statistics on whose work I draw here, notes that but for this difference, the work of the eugenicists could have led to a cultural sociology similar to Bourdieu's. It was by introducing the concept of cultural capital into the space generated by this grammar that Bourdieu inflected 
earlier logics of inheritance in a socio-cultural dilection, and in doing so, producing cultural capital as a new governmental actor, which through its connections to the education and arts bureaucracies sought to even out social inequalities. But it did so, I think, in ways that echoed the focus of the eugenic problematic on the professional middle class. I'll just say a few words about this and then wrap up. In focusing on ancestry to account for differences in aesthetic and intellectual capacities, and thus converting naturally endowed inherited mental capacities into a hierarchy of occupations, eugenicists' focus on the inheritance of individual capacities served a twofold differentiating function for the professional middle class in the early 20th century. It differentiated, differentiated it from the working class, regarded as being affected more by the operation of collective and impersonal forces on life chances, and it differentiated it from the upper classes, who were regarded as being more affected by the inheritance of wealth than by the inheritance of cognitive abilities. What most distinguishes Bourdieu's intervention into the problem space of eugenics was the stress he placed on the relations between the reproduction of social position and the inheritance of cultural attitudes as measured by particular combinations of cultural knowledge and practice. The logic of this intervention is evident in the love of art, where an interest in the processes of inheritance across three generations is logged in Borgia's reference to the levels of education and occupation of parents and grandparents. This study was conducted at a distinctive historical moment in France that brought together questions concerning participation in the arts together with questions of cultural democracy in the context of an expanding higher education provision that was charged in accordance with the values of French republicanism to extend the right to full participation in art and culture to all citizens. The political logic of cultural capital was thus predicated on a distinctive statistical grammar that brought together questions of inheritance, social position, and cultural knowledge and tastes and practices in ways that made it, cultural capital, a plausible lever toward the leveling out of social inequalities. But Bourdieu's position entailed an analytical optic that focused on, uh, informed by his critical engagements with Kant's aesthetic and his relations to eugenics, entailed an analytical optic that focused on the role of cultural capital in organizing the relations between the professional and managerial classes, the dominated fraction of the dominant class, and the economically dominant fractions of that class at the expense of other culture class relations, particularly amongst the working class. And you can see this in the structure of the sample for distinction in the rationale, which I hope you can read there, in the rationale that Bourdieu gave for this. So, to conclude, what I've tried to do is by way of playing off a number of different takes on the relations between aesthetics and conceptions of class is to provide elements of a kind of like a critical genealogy for Pierre Bourdieu's approach to cultural capital or some aspects of it. I've done so, let me stress, not with a view to preferring the accounts of Williams uh, or of Rancière over um, that of Bourdieu, uh, but rather to foreground some similarities. And the similarities derive from the role that Kant's work plays in providing a kind of like... Um, secularized Christian eschatology about how we move from here to a world worlds beyond conflict in which it's aesthetics 
that plays the key role in that transition. But I've also done this with a view to highlighting some aspects of Bourdieu's work that I think need to be handled cautiously, and by way of offering an explanation as to why the wonderful work that he does in exploring the differences and tensions and movements and counter-movements and struggles within and between different fractions of what he calls the bourgeoisie and the petty bourgeoisie are not matched in his approach, but has been in the work of others to the working classes. Thanks, thanks, thanks Tony, and straight on to Angela. Okay, well, uh, I would uh, like to start off by thanking Mike Savage and the team for inviting me to offer some very informal reflections within a space of 10 minutes on the topic of British cultural studies. And uh, just as an introduction, I should say that my pathway has overlapped with Tony in that when I was a student at uh, Birmingham Centre for Cultural Studies under Stuart Hall, writing my thesis on Jackie magazine, um, Stuart was stolen away uh, to the Open University in 1979, much to the distress of everybody left behind in, in Birmingham. Um, But in fact, as you'll see from my PowerPoint, I I would really argue that the work that uh, took place at the Open University with Tony, Stuart Hall, uh, some other colleagues, uh, Sean Nixon and Paul DeGay, uh, and David Held and Doreen Massey, was immensely important and significant to whatever we might like to define as British cultural studies. So in many ways, uh, my talk goes from Birmingham, covers the Open University, and then moves up to the present day. And actually, I just want to make... I'll be making three points. The first is really what is cultural studies and uh, what is popular culture and uh, why is it that these uh, are troubling areas for discussion and is it that their troubling nature uh, indicates to us that there is quite a lot at stake in the question of culture and popular culture. And the second point uh, I'll be making will be some reflections on the work of Stuart Hall and how that has continued to be relevant to understanding contemporary society. And then I'll end up with a few words about feminism and cultural studies and contemporary uh, feminist cultural studies in relationship to neoliberalism. Okay, but I can do this in 10 minutes. (laughs) Absolutely promise. Okay. So you can see that from the title, Tensions, Ambivalences and Paradoxes. And uh, I start here with uh, three book covers, uh, all of which involve Tony, and which I think are still marvellous books and well worth uh, looking at again and critically engaging with, popular culture, past and present. Uh, Tony was the author of a marvellous study of James Bond, Uh, which I think is still relevant and perhaps you might do a new edition of. Um, And then the other text, popular television and film. And what was really important about all of these books is that they brought together in a really interesting way uh, some of the most challenging paradigms from the mid to late 70s, post-structuralism, textuality, uh, experimental scholarship, 
uh, involving border crossings. So there was a kind of sense of which there were, these were unruly texts. So my first point really is about cultural studies and its legacy. Uh, it always felt, and it continues to do so, that there was a large emotional investment in cultural studies, which is kind of quite unusual for an academic discipline, because academic disciplines are, of course, objective, cold, rigorous, and so on. And yet, in cultural studies, there was always a kind of tension. It was, there was always some idea of things being quite febrile and kind of quite intense. So cultural studies was revered, loved, very disparaged, often disappeared or considered no longer needed. Now, when it was disparaged, I remember various eminent criminologists saying, oh, yes, but at Birmingham you published your juvenilia, um, you know, which was a kind of probably quite true, actually. It was done in a very informal kind of way. So uh, the early work from Birmingham was definitely experimental. It was a kind of instinctual scholarship. It involved border crossings. It was a hybrid discipline, and perhaps that remains the case today. Uh, there was, it introduced textuality, which again very much reflected uh, Tony's influence, post-structuralism. And then it was characterized by a whole series of decisive turns. Post-colonial critique, the idea of new ethnicities, feminist cultural studies, and then making an absolutely decisive intervention uh, Stuart Hall's work on Thatcherism, and at the same time, uh, Tony's work and others working on cultural policy, on museums, and using Foucault. So that gives you a kind of sense of the, the range of topics. One could say that the, there was a risk strategy in doing cultural studies, particularly uh, as we see it evolving within what we now call the neoliberalizing university. And what I mean by the return to disciplinarity and the idea of cultural studies disappeared is that we could say that cultural studies was brought trouble to the university or trouble to uh, the academy in very much the same way that Judith Butler's gender trouble troubled everybody. And in some ways, that operated as a kind of what Leclerc called a constitutive outside. It forced the inside to kind of change its game, to kind of measure up to what was happening in the university. And what I have noticed personally in the last two decades is that people still kind of disparage cultural studies. It's very easily kind of dismissed, ignored, disappeared, or oh, we don't do that here. But what I've also found is that the major disciplines in the arts and humanities and history kind of found a way of incorporating it so that there probably is not a modern language scholar the length and breadth of the UK who doesn't do cultural studies. If you do French, you do French cultural studies. If you do Italian, do you do Italian cultural studies? And so on and so forth. But it became a kind of secondary feature to the CV. That is to say, nowadays, in order to kind of make your way in the university, you do your PhD on romanticism, and then you might write about chick lit on the side. And that really kind of sums up what I mean about uh, cultural studies haunting, uh, forming uh, different kinds of practice within the university. And so to sum up, 
One could say that uh, cultural studies was a kind of easy scapegoat. It was blamed. For example, one of the first books about the neoliberal university was called The University in Ruins by Bill Redding. I think it was the year 2000. And he pointed to marketization, to entrepreneurialism in the university, all the things that we know that have happened, treating the student as a customer. But he blamed cultural studies. Um, so that kind of gives you, and Pierre Bourdieu also wrote a very angry piece where he blamed American cultural studies. Okay, the connect to inequalities. What was the trouble that, uh, that cultural studies brought? Gender, race, uh, class differences. Stuart Hall was also continually charged with a slur of identity politics. But actually, where, and, and, and the misnomer of identity politics. But where would we be without race and ethnicity studies and post-colonial critiques? Is it the case then that cultural studies had to uh, find itself in retreat or was it absorbed into other emerging existing disciplines, into creative economy, museum studies, curating studies, visual culture? And to sum up, is it the case that cultural studies, for whatever it is, still works better as a postgraduate discipline, which is where we all started. That is to say, uh, Birmingham was a postgraduate centre, and therefore it only seemed at that point to make sense to understand Raymond Williams on the basis of already having read Dickens and uh, George Eliot, and that was where Raymond Williams came in. On the other hand... Certainly at Goldsmiths, teaching the first years this year, I have found a love for Bourdieu and a love for cultural studies. So there is a first year BA course for 18 and 19 year olds and they absolutely have fallen in love with Bourdieu's notion of cultural capital. So, okay, second point, Stuart Hall rediscovered. Let's just say that there is a great deal of relevance today that scholars up and down the country in the kinds of fields that we all work, have rediscovered policing the crisis. I haven't got time to go into it, but there's a new book by Tracy Jensen, Feminist Cultural Studies, called Parenting the Crisis, where she absolutely pays homage to policing the crisis, and she looks at the way in which, in contemporary neoliberal society, uh, the family and parenting and parenting values and parenting programs have come to the forefront, and she particularly looks at the way in which the family is now expected to bear the burden of what Wendy Brown calls responsabilization. That is to say, the family bears the burden of the decline of the welfare state. And you can see from the four slides that I've got here that kind of show the pattern in Stuart's, Stuart Hall's thinking from policing the crisis to parenting the crisis today. Obviously, Stuart's critique of Thatcherism and authoritarian populism really helps us understand the new right today and uh, neoconservatism and even the alt-right. And the final slide here actually is by the uh, leader or one of the leaders of the AFD in Germany, the far-right organization Alice Weidel. And the reason I've got this slide here is because Alice Weidel said Mrs. Thatcher was her role model. And when Stuart Hall wrote about the great moving right show and about Thatcherism, one wondered how far right could he have envisaged this is going. Um, okay, and I'm just going to, so I've already covered most of these points. 
Uh, Stuart wrote about Thatcherism to neoliberalism uh, via Tony Blair, Cameron-led coalition linking, key factor being the link between political culture and popular culture and populism. Uh, Stuart Hall remained within the framework of Gramsci uh, right up until the end of his life. Parallel to Stuart was, of course, the work of Foucault, who rejected Marxism, but also didn't have a strong theory of media and culture. So perhaps in understanding contemporary uh, culture and popular culture in the context of neoliberalism, we need to draw from both. Uh, A few final words about Stuart Hall in that what he did uh, draw attention to was everyday life, ways of life, common culture, and in his uh, last essays before he died, he wrote about common sense neoliberalism. And I think what was really important about that was Stuart's attention to the everyday vocabularies of the tabloid press and reality TV, as Bev has also written about. He, had a, he was finely tuned to the vocabularies that were being used uh, across political culture and popular culture. And one of my favorite quotes from Stuart is where he quotes George Osborne talking about people on benefits sleeping off a life on benefits. And that was precisely the kind of way in which Stuart drew attention to the way that the tabloids and popular culture paved the way. They became an instrument of anti-welfareism. They ushered in created a climate which made it possible to accept massive cuts in welfare. And they did this by disparaging people living on on benefits. So culture plays a key role in mobilizing consent to neoliberalism, making it popular. TV programs, tabloid headlines, benefit cheats and scroungers that Bev has also written about, This does the work of social polarization, and it also creates intra-class hostility. Perhaps we could say that Stuart paid less attention to the everyday cruelty and symbolic violence of contemporary uh, neoliberal society. He stopped short at the focus on those who, as again, uh, George Osborne, those who can't get out of bed to to go to work. Okay, and so I'll just finish with a couple of slides that show this kind of symbolic cruelty or real cruelty, the tabloid anti-benefits mum. But then also, very interestingly, which I'm sure Bev picked up, the the female artist who took a photograph in McDonald's and then put a caption on it, these guys look like they got one GCSE, uh, which uh, then attracted quite a lively discussion. So to finish off, feminism, media culture, and neoliberalism, there are a large number of scholars now working very much in the tradition of cultural studies. Bev, uh, Imogen Tyler, Kim Allen, Christina Scharf, Rosgill, and many others. And in my book, The Aftermath of Feminism, what I decisively tried to do was to knit political culture to popular culture. If you like, knitting Tony Blair to Bridget Jones. I think I'll just finish there. So thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Angela, for that remarkable panoramic view of British cultural studies in 10 minutes. Um, over to, over there to Clive. Thank you. So in this very, very brief contribution, I'd like to talk about the cultural studies approach to film and TV studies, with a particular focus on ethnicity. 
using the issue of cultural diversity in the UK film industry as a case study for exploring how cultural studies can be useful for examining the manifold inequalities within contemporary cultural production. But why should we even frame cultural production within our discussions of inequality? Because a key purpose of culture is the ability to represent and critique contemporary social life. Because cultural representations produce meanings and establish individual, collective, and national identities. Because cultural production is also hierarchical and exclusionary. Because those who own the means of cultural production, the modes of cultural exhibition, and define the forms of cultural expression continue to be the preserve of the privileged who vandalize the purpose of culture and define how the self imagines the other. It's a concern with the politics of culture that underpin the emergence of cultural studies. Its central proposition is that culture of all kinds produces, reproduces, and legitimizes forms of thought and feeling, and the function of people in society is crucially affected by this. Who we think we are, who we believe others to be, how we think society functions, all of this is shaped decisively by culture and has profound social and psychological consequences. The intellectual habitat of all of this was, of course, the Birmingham Centre for Contemporary Culture Studies, known colloquially as the Birmingham School, which was founded by Richard Hoggett and spawned cultural theories such as Paul Giroy, Andrew McRoby, <laughs> Paul Willis, and many others. However, the key figure in all of this was, of course, Professor Stuart Hall. He was there from 1964 to 1979, 11 of those years as its director. Hall came from the tradition of the hegemonic analysis of Antonio Gramsci, but Hall was actually updating Gramsci with a focus on what the cultural texts themselves mean and what they do to produce that meaning. In the Hall approach, if there's a focus on what the cultural texts mean and how they operate, you are cognizant of their wider hegemonic function. Cultural studies have a distinctive mode of study. It focused on the particularities around cultures founded on class and race, gender, nationhood and sexuality. Equally, cultural studies doesn't assume that cultural products are unified expressions of sections of society, but treats them as products of contestation, sites of struggle against each other. So Stuart Hall's evisceration of the subtle racism in contemporary sitcoms, um, It Ain't Half Racist Month from 1979, immediately springs to mind. So cultural studies was doing work around audience research, and in turn, exposed film studies as possessing completely undeveloped understanding of audience, which still believed the audience was the spectator and that we can guess who the audience is by reading the text, whereas cultural consumption was the paramount concern of cultural studies. It was about the empirical audience that was exciting, revealing, and at time possessed a greater intellectual dexterity than film studies. The social unrest of the late 70s and 80s were conducive to a set of political agendas to be brought into being through culture. And as Andrew's mentioned, um, Stuart Hall's Police in the Crisis stands out as the seminal text providing an analysis of the state, authoritarianism, and how cultural context, film, TV, print media, are often heavily racialized to create consensus through a white-centric media. In this, Hall embedded the idea that certain cultural texts have limited material existence or function or meaning until they're processed by the viewer, and he explored the power structures that condition this processing. Hall would later move to cultural identity, with a huge focus on the context, the circulation of the text in culture, 
For Hall, the 80s represented a juncture in the cinematic representation of cultural difference, which emerged as a key issue of contestation. Many argue that Stuart Hall and the height of New Times led to the cul-de-sac of identity politics, with Hall dubbed the godfather of multiculturalism. But Hall was concerned with the politics of multiculture, which is quite different from the politics of multiculturalism. This wasn't about identity politics, but why did people seek the arts and culture? What versions of the world did they find there? What cultural bridges were being built? Things were to happen in the 1990s were about a lived politics of multiculture, what it meant to exist in a society that was post-Thatcher and post-modern. This isn't to imply that culture studies offers the knee plus ultra of cultural analysis. What's happened more significantly is that in many examples, we're using the same theoretical models to deal with new ideological phenomena. Because the problem is culture itself. It's changing drastically. And if the neoliberal agenda has taken us into a different political situation, a different social situation, and a different cultural situation, the critique must also be different. To me, progress in a culture studies approach is how do you represent a fundamental renovation of Stuart Hall? So this is the focus on the semiology. You're actually blind to the wider industrial function. As my good colleague Anamik Saha has observed, for someone who underlines the centrality of culture in physical, <laughs> economic, and social processes, Hall, in fact, shows very little interest in the dynamic of industrial culture production itself. So what commandeers the images? How are they sanctioned? It's this concern that forms the basis of my very, very brief case study by focusing on an area that's very related to inequality, which is the question of cultural diversity within the UK film industry. From its advent, it's possessed very paradoxical features. It represents the aspirations for inclusion, but also a reluctance to take responsibility for the existing exclusion. Sarita Malik um, has interrogated the shift between multiculturalism to cultural, then creative diversity, and the meanings encoded in such language forms. A whole new revealing locution has emerged, and these considerations venture beyond mere semantics. Every incremental step in the evolution of diversity imbues the removal of political articulation. In my own analysis, there is evidence that a new ideological warfare is being executed within this latest phase, which I describe as the repertoires of third phase diversity. Firstly, there is decontextualization. Now, this travels way beyond another industrial hermeneutic. The meanings offer patina to discourses that are, in fact, laden with the socio-political, aligned to recognition that diversity can be justified in a much, much more decontextualized manner by establishing diversity as a proponent of business rather than the proponent of equality. This frames the second repertoire of diversity, naturalization. The grammar used to obscure systemic processes through the bien passant adoption of terms. Most recently, diversity is now contemporaneous with unconscious bias, that the industry is simply psychologically indifferent to racial exclusion, which in all simplicity is taking on the function of naturalizing what actually exists in a discriminatory landscape. In regards to the cultural policy vernacular, none are able to reconcile policy with the contemporary life of inequality within the cultural because it's trapped in a dialectic between inequality and the pervasive discourse of post-racialism. Finally, there is acquiesce, the accretive effects of the unification of these repertoires. It's circulation. This, I feel, could be our main site of cultural contestation in disallowing this to penetrate the popular imagination. 
how was this actually manifest? By the celebration of piecemeal initiatives and short-termism, the quantification of diversity is a marketing strategy. I'm seeing a situation where groups are conceiving their own struggles through the optic of institutional diversity that attempt with some success to redefine one's relationship with inequality. Which is why, in my opinion, the basis for a cultural studies approach must be a radical questioning. When Stuart Hall used the term incorporation, he was almost prophesizing the cosmopolitan nature of neoliberalism, which can distort inequality by its ability to recruit difference within elements of power. Because current policy orthodoxy doesn't deal with the politics of inequality, but the arithmetic that simply rearranges the distribution of inequality is not to alter the structure of inequality itself. So to conclude, for me, there is this yet-to-be-conceived narrative of inequality within the cultural diversity agenda. The cultural industries have a long, protracted history of inequality. And what I'm searching for in my theoretical work, in my textual analysis, in my criticism, is an alternative framework that actually responds to the neoliberal agenda and those conditions. This is why the cultural studies lens is needed more than ever. There is an exploration that, by its very nature, the mainstream wants to reject, because it makes insertion at the very marrow of its unequal structures. This is the legacy that we can inherit from culture studies. Economists see in diversity the forensic trace of the unresolved Stuart Hall critique. But the question today is no longer just who is included, or even to what degree, but how racial discourse and equal representations continue to circulate, masquerading as equality, in order to usher in the post-racial. And what's needed is a cultural studies optic to expose the mechanisms of diversity because it comes from a powerful tradition that can tell us differently. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Clive. Uh, and now, uh, last but not least, uh, on, to, on to Bev. Okay, so I'm going to do a kind of different story. I'm going to chart a path through cultural studies, the one that I took, uh, in order to actually answer Mike's question, how does cultural studies help us study inequality now? So I begin with a very, we're all doing history, my academic history, beginning uh, with my attempt to understand how power works. My question when I began my PhD was why do people consent to power, which is the absolute classic Gramscian question. To answer this question, I had to build my methodological scaffolding. How to answer this question by looking at what had previously been studied um, and how adequate were the previous studies to what I wanted to explain. I was interested in young working class women who wanted or really had no alternative but to be care workers. So I wanted to understand what people did with power. And for me, the did question is what's absolutely critical and crucial in my interpretation or journey through cultural studies. So in the 1980s, when I began my PhDs, the answers to how power worked have mainly been given by Marxism, by basic traditional theories of base and superstructure, Marx, obviously, various different renditions, adaptions by kind of pseudo-Marxism uh, of Weber, structural Marxist understandings by Louis Althusser of ideology, state apparatuses, by Pierre Bourdieu, but you've already seen how he wasn't very good on understanding gendered power, and lots of people argued at the time was actually a kind of weak Weberian, 
Um, by post-structural understandings of disciplinary power, which were brilliantly developed by people like Tony, uh, that, that used Foucault, and Nick Rose also brilliantly developed. But nearly all of these theories were about how people were being done to and being done over, or power working through. There was very, very little space for what people actually did with power. How did they use it? How did they respond to it? I, did a, um, I found a book that I loved so much, it was almost heresy within the field of cultural studies, and that was E.P. Thompson's The Making of the Working Class. It was denounced as empirical by Althusser, and this huge battle began between the empiricists, supposedly, and the theoreticists. I love both theory and empirical work. Um, so I was trapped, and I didn't dare mention E.P. Thompson. There was obviously Williams and Hoggart who'd been working on working-class lives, but again, in a very traditional masculine way, and they didn't really speak to me very oddly. People keep saying why, but they just didn't, and that's kind of the instinctive take to theory which we have. And then, of course, there was Gramscian hegemony, really, really critical. How do people give their consent to power, but focus much more on labour, on workers, and again, on traditional masculinity. So there wasn't much that made sense of the specificity of women's lives, and I was particularly interested in social reproduction and care. And most of the work on class, and I was very interested in class, um, was mainly about labour. Not always, but mainly, and came from a very traditional workerist perspective. Now, fortunately... Critiques were being developed at the time by people, the anti-racist theories, as I called them, Paul Gilroy, Stuart Hall, Hazel Carby, Errol Lawrence, amazing stuff at um, CCCS, by feminists like Angela, and I brought this along, this hand-tight paper from 1978 written by Angela on ideology. Um, so things were beginning to happen, Charlotte Brunson, that, pe that, that people have mentioned, and the Women Take Issue feminist group. There are also queer theories were beginning to be developed, which were really good, by feminist sociologists like Michelle Barrett and Mary McIntosh. So this meant I was doing a lot of mapping, trying to find things that would help me explain what I wanted to understand, social reproduction, care work, why do women consent to power? So I kind of matched a theoretical framework, and then I started mapping a context. How did power work in the locations in which the young working-class women that I wanted to study were located? Who wanted to be carers? What was their context? So to do that sort of mapping, I had to understand the role of capital, which was, at, uh, at the time, about the railway industry in the northwest of England, which had produced phenomenally high unemployment. I identified the withdrawal of state provision. Thatcherism was hitting uh, the north, with an absolute vengeance and the massive welfare cuts that had been implemented. I mapped out the institutions in which these young women were located and the experiences to which they were subject, where they were often described as pathological, not worth educating and why bother about. And I understood the pushing of conservative ideologies that were coming out of Thatcherism again with a vengeance. There was, there's lots of studies of the kind of the promotion of the uh, traditional family. We see that in the kind of anti-homosexual uh, purges through uh, the Great Right, the Great Moving Right show in Section 28. So I'm beginning to establish theoretical frames, contextual frames, frames which understand the role of capital and the role of the state. 
But there wasn't a great deal, again, stressing to draw on, which focused on lived experience. And most of the theories of ideology, even the good ones, assume that people internalised ideology, that things worked, that people did things in the way they should. Even theories of governmentality, which were probably the most sophisticated versions of ideological understandings, were still about people being, being um, people internalising things. So I was quite worried about that. So in a way, just to stop for a moment, I had an extensive understanding of how power works on, to, and through people, but not an understanding of what they did with it. What do people do with power? How do they live power? How do we know what they do? Do we trust our understandings? What about methodology? Did they consent? Did they internalise? And does it matter? Cultural studies at the time and, and the period I entered was very political. We all had to address, so what, when we began? Why were we even bothering to be a PhD student was considered to be a bourgeois preoccupation, so we had to you know, really make our research matter. Um, and why did women want to care in such a brutal, uncaring environment in which they were subject to constant pathologisation, devaluation and delegitimation? Now, note the similarities to now. They're incredible. I mean, this, the, 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 work, the treatment of the working class women is absolutely almost, absolutely almost identical. Uh, and, and the working class since I began my PhD have been subject to even more intense degradation, devaluation, delegitimation. They've been made abject. They have been made into a surplus population symbolically and economically. So the conditions now for inequality are very similar. How does power work? It's working, I would argue, in very similar ways. But in order to answer it, I came across the book that I truly loved, Paul Willis's brilliant study, Learning to Labour, 1970. Why do working class kids get working class jobs? And it was about 12 working class boys in Wolverhampton and how they found value in manual labour. But it was all about masculinity. It was all about manual labour. It even has a chapter called Penetration. So I tried to develop what I wanted to call a structural moral economy. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was a disaster, really. I was trying to blend out there with, uh, with E.P. Thompson, putting them together, calling them their uh, two terms. But I was trying. I was trying, to, I was trying to find a way through all this. So I tried to develop a feminist version of a structural moral economy which could understand social reproduction. And from all the mapping that I'd done, I developed a form of what I call ethnographic historical materialism. Again, there's quite a lot of contradictions in what I do. Probably noticing that. And I would, I mean, historical materialism itself is a methodology of combining historical forces and economic and social relations to understand the conditions of possibility that people can inhabit. So in the people in this case, young white working class women, must make their own history, I argued. And it was understood in cultural studies as understanding the conjuncture, all those historical forces coming together. So my, my challenge then was to understand how these young women were positioned by history, economies, the state, the institutions, and how value was extracted from them, how they were positioned and understood by discourse and symbolic forms of classification, e.g. class, gender, sexuality and race, and the attributions of value that were given to them and extracted from them. These culminated in what was emerging in cultural studies as analysis of subject positions, and I still work with subject positions, Subject positions within a conjuncture. 
and this was the subject positions that they could occupy, the conditions of possibility that they had. And people like James Donald developed a kind of Foucauldian analysis of subject positions, but I wanted to fit these into an analysis of capitalism. So again, I'm working with contradictions all the time. Um, and so I wanted to work with the... I tried to get through this by using the French word azetia, which means to both be subject, to be made subject, and to make a subject. So I was trying to look at the dual ability to have forces work through you, at you, to you, but also what you do with them. And what was crucial was trying to understand what alternatives people had. So by using an analysis of subject positions within a historical conjuncture... I started doing an ethnography to understand how power was lived in relation to other, dialogically how it shapes others, how it's always overdetermined. There are many forces that are shaping this and they're often very contradictory. And how, as a theorist, I was trying to understand continually how to put theories to work, how to do theoretical modification. Culture is the site by which subject positions are known and lived. And I saw, by using my version of historical materialist ethnography, how a group of young women were positioned by, obviously, capitalism. They were going to provide free labor in terms of welfare and in terms of caring. By discourse, they were totally devalued, considered to be not even good enough to breed. Some people would say. And classifications, they were expected to be gendered and expected to care. And they were totally positioned as working-class women continually. But I saw how they responded to all these subject positionings. I saw how they were continually misrepresented. I saw how they were totally told all the time how inadequate they were. But I also saw how they disidentified from these symbolic classifications and institutional positionings to which they were uh, subject to. I saw they, how they crafted their own personhood differently, a personhood with value that wasn't extracted from them. I saw how they developed their own moral economy. And one substantial... <clears throat> they developed a moral economy substantially shaped by social reproduction and caring, which was based on respectability, but not bourgeois respectability that they had been absolutely subject to, um, uh, which told them to perform particular standards, but to their own values, to what mattered to them, to what mattered to them locally. I've since conducted many studies on lots of different areas, and I've seen how this dynamic works all the time, as those who have often not recognised come to be seen through various different perspectives, such as ethnography, and how we can use ethnography to see how they craft very different moral economies to the ones that are attributed to to them. So one, what I want to argue finally is that I think moral economy is political economy. I think when E.P. Thompson was talking about a very particular historical formation, he was talking about how people made their history. I want to argue that if we really want to understand the economy, we need to understand it as a moral economy. It's one that's always shaped in the interests of particular people. But if we look away from those who have power to those who are struggling to overcome power and develop powerlessness, we see an entirely different shape. And it was through that that I saw people did not internalise ideology, did not accept the values that were attributed to them, challenge the symbolic classifications and learn to live life differently. Thank you.
Thanks, thanks Deb. So uh, we've, we've had a fantastic panel with uh, a huge number of reference points, and I think, from, from my perspective, and, you know, and, and uh, someone who studied, studied my undergraduate degree in the late 70s and uh, PhD in the early 80s, I mean, I think uh, capturing a sense of the power of culture in a particular generational moment in the UK is really, really important. And you know, speaking as a co-director of the IR, I think we need more of that sense of, of the unruliness of culture and how we use it to challenge inequality today. And we've also had uh, uh, insights into that. So we only have about 20 minutes left. Um, let's try and get the conversation going from the floor. We'll try and take uh, questions in groups of three. Um, and if you can briefly introduce yourself. Uh, we, had, we don't have much time, so please keep your questions or your, or your um, offerings you know, short and sweet. Uh, who would like to... Who would like to start? I, um, culture, uh, just one question. Um, I think culture is more important than ever before. I, I just got a question uh, about the British Museum, which um, I often go to. And I went to a sector the other day on international cultural relations and role museums can play. And there was, I wonder when you direct Hartwig Fisher, who talked a little bit about that. There's a, uh, there's a, I think there's a Conservative MP, Tim Lutton, who's chairman of the all-party uh, uh, all group museum. I don't wonder whether you could just say something about how maybe uh, the significant intercultural relations and maybe the real museums like the Royal Museum can play, if any member of the panel could comment on that. Okay, we, we have one of the world's leading experts on museums here. Uh, <laughs> uh, wait, wait a minute, though. Will you get the question? <coughs> More. Let's get a couple more questions first, and then we'll, we'll um, get some comments. Any more? Any more? I just wondered if you could reflect a little bit on the kind of the closing down of institutional spaces that, support, that explicitly support cultural studies. So, particular department, in particular in the UK context, the lack of departments and BA and MA programs that over the last kind of fifteen or twenty years, and what that means for the kind of future of cultural studies and its practice and its relationship to the questions that you've been addressing. Thank you. Uh, one more question? Um, I suppose this is a question for everybody, really. Um, so what happened to the so what? Because that, that's really it. You know, so, so Bev, you, you said, you know, when you yes. started your PhD, you, you all had to sort of say why you were there. And, you know, what was it about? And so I'm going to just sort of throw that out and ask, you know, what happened to that? Okay, okay. so any, uh, any of you can respond to any of those questions. I think, I think the first question about the British Museum is, is really getting into some thoughts about the space for museums in terms of intervening in debates about culture and... And British Museum is one example, but there might be other ones. I don't know if you want to show that, Tony. Okay, well, no, very briefly. I mean, I think um, Angela referred to my interests once were in popular culture, and they still are, but I developed a strong interest in museums, precisely because um, looking at things from a different perspective, the work of Foucault has been referred to a number of times, and the Foucault, Angela said, didn't have a theory of culture, and that's perfectly true. But I and a number of people have tried to work with Foucault to develop a a way in which we can think about instruments, institutions like museums in Foucauldian terms as apparatuses, as cultural apparatuses through which particular forms of knowledge are, are deployed in order to help shape the attributes of populations in ways that suit, fit with particular kind of like objectives which are not necessarily those of, simply those of a ruling class, but those of particular knowledge fractions and so on. So museums are, are really, really important cultural institutions, 
which operate upon us and our thoughts and conceptions uh, in all sorts of ways. Um, but from my point of view, what, they, what one needs to address them is somewhat uh, uh, different than some of the approaches to culture that have been developed within British cultural studies. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to respond to or just one? Uh, yeah, yeah, okay, well, I'll, I'll respond to the question about cultural studies. And um, I think that it's a, a really timely issue. And I could give you both a pessimistic answer and a slightly more optimistic. I'll start with the more optimistic one. I think in many ways one could say that cultural studies um, from its you know, early days has achieved so much that it's become part of the kind of everyday currency of what we might call the radical humanities or the arts or uh, <clears throat> the, the, in some ways it's kind of transformed what we, what in America would be called a, a liberal arts um, foundation. Um, and through post-colonial theory, through all the kind, through psychoanalysis, through feminism. So that would be a kind of optimistic reading uh, of the way in which it's hard to think about contemporary society without taking into account the work of people who might not be uh, totally identified with cultural studies, like Judith Butler, but who nevertheless are kind of fellow travellers. You know, so there's a kind of large population of academics who might be trained in completely different disciplines, but for whom there is a kind of shared vocabulary, uh, certain kinds of methodological uh, principles in common, certain kinds of concerns, certain kinds of... So Judith Butler's recent work about precarity and precariousness and about uh, ethics and uh, so on are very close to some of the, the work that we associate like with, with Stuart Hall, really. So that would be my optimistic take, would be that it's, it's done so much that it doesn't need to really be a specific thing or a specific disciplinary package anymore. Um, less optimistically, I would say that, uh, that there has been, for uh, particular reasons, a retrenchment to what we might call disciplinary purity, and we all know that in the British Academy because of the REF, because of people feeling that they're continually being audited, the need for respectability, the dangers of being unrespectable. I mean, I often feel I can say femi I'm fem do feminist cultural studies now because, you know, I'm whatever age I am. <laughs> but to postgraduates now, I might say, mm, good idea to, you know... Uh, be within literary, comparative literature, and so on. So I think that there has been a retrenchment and uh, an emphasis on disciplinary purity through the REF, through the way in which our audit culture works, through the way in which you get promotion. Uh, and that's, a, that's rather dispiriting and demoralizing. And um, finally, I would say that despite that retrenchment, there still is this way in which um, precisely because of the, the kind of connections that you can have with a cultural studies perspective that it actually helps younger people coming up understanding the world that they live in. So I'm thinking again about the 18 and 19 year olds, the first years. 
uh, that I teach at Goldsmiths. Now, on one hand, again, uh, negatively, one could say, ah, oh, but Angela... Your, your students, you're thinking about employability, and your students in media and communications might use their cultural studies knowledge as a form of cultural capital. Now they know about Bourdieu, for example, going for jobs uh, right across the media, right across press and PR and in journalism. If you know your theory of cultural capital, or even your theory of subcultural capital, um, it's, a, it's a, an asset on the certain kinds of in the culture and creative sector. So again, one could be slightly cynical about that. On the other hand, I do find something of the early spirit of enthusiasm for students discovering. There's a little sense of, oh my goodness, this is, you know, we can discover. Here is somebody that is, has done work on uh, some of the um, work that I did with Bev, actually, we did together on uh, makeover programs and using Bourdieu to understand television gardening programs or cook programs or Nigella programs and students continually say to me well I always thought that, there, that, that this was sociologically relevant but only when I read Bev did it make sense so you know that that's a kind of spectrum of, um, uh, of, of still this kind of sense of unrespectability um, I mean I guess to me I came into cultural studies as a method from film studies um, and what was a revelation for me uh, during my um, MA and PhD was how to approach textual analysis that really considered the actual circulation of the text itself. You know, the meanings encoded, how the text is actually kind of commandeered by a particular industry or kind of um, form of kind of knowledge. There was no way that I could actually approach understanding kind of film without actually understanding, you know, the kind of certain primitives existent. Particularly for someone who was working around questions of race and class, I think is quite crucial. There was always this kind of love-hate affair between film studies and cultural studies, which was quite suspicious of each other. They thought that um, cultural studies simply just turns film into questions of classification rather than assessment or judgment or value. Whereas my approach through my PhD supervisors and mentors was thinking about not just deconstructing the text itself, but thinking about what the actual textual properties themselves are kind of doing that contribute to a racialization of kind of someone or someone's class being kind of defended in kind of certain ways. So thinking about the mise-en-scene, thinking about the textual features, thinking about the characterizations, all these things can be brought into a kind of cultural studies kind of lens with film studies. So the idea of kind of hybridity is something that's really kind of important. I think that tradition has been kind of lost, as um, Andrew's been kind of mentioning. But um, I think, for me, it's always been about not clinging on to a particular academic paradigm and actually really kind of using cultural as a resource for actually informing some of my textual analysis as well. And I guess I'll have to take the so what question. Um, <laughs> it also fits with the... Um, I'm very happy to, because I do um, ask every single PhD student, so what? But I think they... I think to be a PhD student now, you have a much more difficult life. It's more competitive. There's far less jobs. Um, I've answered this question a lot in terms of feminism because uh, I think a lot of us who got into feminism didn't think we'd have a career in feminism, as in doing feminism. We thought we'd have a career working, um, I don't know, with rape crisis, with lots of different women's organisations. We never thought we'd become academics. So it, in nine, the end of the 1990s, I met somebody who actually 
you know, it's like what I'd first call a career academic. That's all they wanted to do was just be an academic in feminist theory, and it seemed very odd. Like, why bother? But um, I think so what has been shaped by REF, by institutional crampdowns, by the fact that you're punished if you do a lot of extra stuff, if you're trying to meet all the publishing deadlines and everything else. I think so what's become a really difficult thing to do um, and things like who funds? Who funds PhDs? You know, people who want policy, they, they, the ESRC changed completely to doing government policy funding. So there was a lot more freedom to do the, to answer the so what, um, to explore, you know, you could do a PhD on what did ideology mean? Now would be much more difficult. You've got 10 minutes. Let's just try and get one more round of questions in before we finish. Anyone else want to say anything? Yeah, at the back there. Hi, um, I'm a student in the department writing my dissertation on museums um, and I have a question for Tony. Um, you know you talk about museums as like the sort of cultural apparatus in society. Um, I just wonder whether that authority is actually in decline in face of so-called uh, post-truth populism and zeitgeist. In, whether it's in decline in terms of what, sorry? Um, post-truth populism and zeitgeist. Oh, blimey. <laughs> Sorry. Why are you thinking, Tony? Uh, any, more, any more people want to talk? I'll make a short answer. I think it's just too early to say. <clears throat> All right, I mean, so the, the post-truth zeitgeist is what? It's, it's kind of what the, the, the three or four-year lead-up into, uh, into Trump and Trumpism. Um, obviously, there is a major kind of like populist turn and um, shifting class relations, which mean that there are the positions of intellectuals, um, expertise and so on, is under all kinds of threats. But I, I, I haven't seen that translating through into explicit disputations with the authority of the kinds of knowledge that are deployed within museum curation. I just haven't. I, I don't know if you have. I, I haven't clocked that yet. Uh. Uh, okay, well, maybe I could ask Tony a question, uh, if that's okay. Um, I, no, I, I, I thought it was incredibly interesting, the genealogy you presented. Um, and I just wanted just to say a little bit more about to what extent does this genealogy um, refute some of the uh, radical uh, connotations that we associate with Raymond Williams and uh, you know if Williams was relying on certain kinds of anthropological tropes does that undermine his um, notion of a common culture or a way of life or does it really enrich it I think it situates it historically yeah. I don't think that it um I don't honestly think that Raymond Williams was kind of like ra that radical a thinker in terms of how you might position him as kind of like a radical outsider and so on and so forth. I think he, his work was tremendously important. I think that the, the issues that I was talking about concerning the influence of Kantian aesthetic thought mm. and its influence upon Raymond Williams's conception of a common culture were not unique to him. It's very clear from Jonathan Rose's book on the intellectual history of the working class that Kantian ideas permeated the working, uh, the WEA, permeated the adult education environment in post-war Britain in the 1940s and 1950s. 
So, and of course, that was Williams for, before he went to Cambridge. He was an extramural tutor. Yeah. Um, so. This was a part of the intellectual ambiance of the, post, uh, the post-war period in the 50s and into the early 60s. So what Williams does is, is bring this together and give it a distinctive kind of um, connection to a revaluation of working-class culture. And initially, he was extremely hesitant in his relationship to Marxism. All right? Yes. I mean, he's not in culture and society and in the long revolution. Yes. He's a kind of iffy Marxist, you know? He's yeah. kind of... He's quite... He's quite cautious in his relationship yeah. to it. It's only later on when he writes his book on Marxism and literary theory or whatever it was called yeah. that he fully embraces it. So a part of my purpose is underlining the fact not just Williams but in, in drawing the attention to this, the influence of Kantian thought on radical cultural theory is immense. Okay. I think it's an influence that needs to be challenged. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That was very helpful. I could just say, you've, you've made me think why I always had resistance to um, Richard Hoggart, because even though he describes his mother and the hard work of the grandmother and the kind of d- the domestic situations, there's always this judgment that what the working class actually do if they're, they're entertaining themselves is actually really quite disgusting. Um, you know, it's like they just don't understand how to consume correctly or they, you know, just have bad choice. Okay, okay, but, uh, you know, what, but I have to say, when I set about writing about Jackie magazine, my, my, my only, (laughs) this was like 1975, like my, my guide was Mm -hmm. Hoggart writing about Peg's papers. Yeah, and it, about you know, the kinds of women's magazines that working-class women uh, up north would read. And he actually gave a lovely account of, of how their escapism and their, the kind of uh, fantasies were somehow uh, not just ridiculous. But they know? weren't drinking. It's when they start going out drinking and behaving badly that he's incredibly condemnatory. <laughs> But it's also, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's also for, I mean, you know, I think Hoggart brings a, um, an, a, you know, he engages with a particular construction of working class popular culture, but it's yeah. never for him real culture. He operates yeah, with exactly, a modernist hierarchy. Exactly. Okay. In the Reichian, Reichian. <laughs> any, any last questions? Or, oh, yes. Um, uh, <laughs> yes, in front here. Got t- time for a very quick last round. Thank you. Hello. Um, sorry, I'm only 16, so excuse the naivete, but. Uh, Universities do seem to be very left-leaning with these cultural studies talking about race. We don't seem to look at it from other perspectives. Do you think this growth in right-wing, you talk about the AFD, um, is a response to this university leftism? Obviously, there are pockets of exceptions with Jordan Peterson in Toronto and whatnot, but a lot of these right-wing movements seem to be in response to how left academia is and and the lack of diversity in that. Hello, hi. Um, I studied uh, a master's at Leeds with Dr. Shona Hunter, who is a huge fan of um, some of you. So my question is actually quite an open-ended question, which is for those of us who weren't able to go into academia for the limitations that you discussed um, based on funding and bodies out there, um, if we, you know, have a genuine interest in cultural studies, what can we do in the everyday? And not so much so what, but what do we do with it now? Last question here. Yeah. yeah. Um, th- there has been talk about how uh, the perspectives from um, cultural studies are seeped into other disciplines. 
and also about, for instance, Foucauldian uh, perspectives and museums and how you set up museums. But I have a question regarding uh, impact, and that is how do you think or have at all the critical perspectives from cultural studies been incorporated by policy makers or cultural producers uh, and so forth? Has, it, has cultural studies a legacy on the policy and production side of things, do you think? Okay, thank you very much. Let's, let's do the last, last yeah. sweep around the panel. Who wants to begin? Um, uh, I think Bev. Bev, Bev, yeah. Bev and Claire. Oh, I was going to say there's the two experts here on, oh. on <laughs> policy. <laughs> and, uh, what, about, what, what about you taking the question about what, can what do we do, do with cultural think, studies? Yeah. The really hard one. Yes, that's fair. <laughs> uh, yeah. oh, I think we always have to understand culture as a matter of struggle. You know, it's always about what people are struggling to do and how they're managing to maintain it and, or how they're managing to um, be understood or how they're managing to get their perspective recognised when very different perspectives generate hegemonically. So I think wherever we are, we need to be engaged in understanding the form that cultural studies takes. So I'm not talking about careers, I'm talking about how we apply that analysis to whatever we do. And that could be about how we understand discourses, narratives, films, visual materials, apply it to policy, how we actually respect the people that we talk to, how we understand various things like difference and otherness and identity. It could be about that. So I think it's about how we understand culture as something that is based around and often produced in the very particular interests of power and then how we understand it differently. Thank you. Clive? Yeah, just to respond to the question about um, cultural studies and its impacts on things like um, cultural production and kind of policy, I think what you're highlighting is a situation now where neoliberalism as a discourse has a tremendous uh, dominant hold over people's lives, many people's lives. And in terms of the cultural industries, it means that you can be very, very kind of clear about your criticisms and it has very, very little effect anymore because that criticism is already encoded in its mode of operations. So how this is useful it means that cultural studies today, an updated version, has to be much more fluid. It needs to kind of align itself to other disciplines as it was doing before to actually offer that really kind of key multi- and interdisciplinary approach to kind of navigate through those kind of discourses. Um, in terms of my own work, um, policy, it's very, very kind of hard to impact things like diversity kind of policy with a cultural studies lens because it's been so resistant for so many different years. However, I think um, bringing in things like the race class nexus like I work on, thinking about intersectionality, these things can at least help us to think about how there are certain individuals who suffer that multi multimodal inequality that could somehow affect policy as well. But again, we're in a situation now where the culture industries is so resistant to criticism, it's very, very hard to have a single approach that's kind of challenging these things. Thank you. Well, just some follow-on from that. I mean, I think cultural studies is a, a big and unwieldy beast in some ways, and it has many different kind of like branches, and some of which have influenced policy discourses more than others. Um, some aspects of cultural studies, if we're talking about it more broadly, and this was, a, you know, if we're including like the French tradition of Bourdieu, was born in a policy space. I mean, the language of cultural capital is, in my, you know, it, it has that. It's a part of its conditions of existence, or a particular set of cultural policy coordinates. 
I'd say that many aspects of cultural studies discourses have informed the languages and practices of arts and cultural, cultural industry bureaucracies um, uh, along the lines that Clive was discussing. But nothing's guaranteed, uh, not to coin a phrase, but to uh, echo a phrase of Stuart. You know, there's no, nothing's guaranteed, and certainly the case at the moment. Um, uh, the space for critical cultural studies inputs is under challenge. There's no doubt about that. Okay. Andrew, last word? I, I think, I think that everybody's okay. covered the... Yeah. Okay, great. Can I, can I thank you all? We didn't. Oh, oh. There's a, the killer question about cultural elites. Is there a reaction against cultural elites and left-wing... Anyone want to respond to that? Or not? Sorry, I, I couldn't hear the question I properly. Yeah. Say it again. Well, Sorry. I know... Uh, Professor Beverly, you have your own contradictions within yourself, but academia seems to be very left-wing, sort of, anyone, everyone seems to be very uniform in thought. It seems to be more encouraging a way of thought instead of a way of debate, very left-wing. And there is this growth in right-wing parties. You talked about the AFD. Um, do you think this is in response to how left academia is? Which is, I think, part of, the, part of the debate about populism is it's a reaction against cultural elites, you know, who are too powerful in medical commas. That's a, it's a big issue. I don't know it's if any of you want to um, <laughs> right, uh, respond to that quickly. Well, <coughs> it's, not that the, it's not that I think that cultural elites are too powerful, but I think it would be... Uh, it, if, you're an, if what you're suggesting is, is that the current turn to populism represents particular moves uh, that are seeking to marginalize the cultural and intellectual influence of um, those who are labeled intellectual elites, unless that's the case. But by and large, those who do the labeling represent economic elites mm -hmm. who have far more power than those who are being labeled as the intellectual elites. I mean, I will draw upon Bourdieu here because, I mean, I am a great admirer of Bourdieu in spite of some of the critical aspects of it he would say that what's happening at the moment is something like spokespersons for the dominant economic class are being able to mobilize power against the dominated fraction of the dominant class, and this is what's represented on uh, the, the attack on uh, liberal intellectual forms of expertise. Uh, I think there's some truth in that. Okay. Anyone and, else for uh, I would just uh, say that... Um, one of the values of a cultural studies vocabulary, particularly associated with Stuart Hall, is that it allows us to look at certain kinds of uses of language in a reiterative, uh, repeated way, uh, in a ritualistic way, and at the, the mobilization of certain kinds of terms and phrases that we associate, for, for example, with Steve Bannon and with cultural elites and, and, and the extent to which this has in a kind of accumulative force and it becomes a kind of common sense. So that one thing, oh, yeah, we all know what we're talking about. You're just part of the metropolitan cultural elite. Actually, that is such a profound... Dehistoricization, and it's it's such a kind of form of symbolic violence, actually. And and I think that in Stuart's work and uh, taking that uh, further, one can kind of look at those particular uh, mobilizations of language. So so that would be. I'm sorry, I didn't hear your question yes, properly the first time. Do you need to do anything? No. Okay. Can I thank all the panel? I thank all of you. It's been a great display. Thank you.